Hey, welcome to episode number 22 of More Than Bread, a podcast that values the voice of God coming through the word of God by the spirit of God into the people of God. My name is Dan Nolden. I'm your host, your Bible reader, and the pastor of State College, Pennsylvania. And let me just say how thrilled I am that so many of you are joining in on this quest to work through the whole New Testament. I have no no idea where you are while you're listening to me. Having talked to a few of you, I, I might not want to know, but regardless, I'm glad that you're joining us. As we journey together through the scripture, I'm encouraging you to do three things. Listen. That's obvious. This is a, a podcast. You, you have to listen. But more than listening to me, I'm asking you to listen for the whisper of the Spirit stirring up your heart. Maybe it's a story, a principle, a verse, a truth, a promise. Whatever it is, grab it. And, and as you listen, the second thing we do is learn. We are enrolling in the school of Christ. So every episode, every time I read, learn something new about Jesus or the people who are motivated by their love for Jesus. And and finally, don't leave without figuring out where God might want you to lean in, respond, be a doer, not just a listener. Today we're reading Acts 18 through 23. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. And I'm going to tell you in advance where I'm going to pause. It's in the middle of our reading. One verse where Paul says these words, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life as dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy. Acts chapter 18. Then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all Jews from Rome. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers, just as he was. And each Sabbath found Paul at the synagogue, trying to convince the Jews and Greeks alike. And and after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul spent all his time preaching the word. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed him and insulted him, Paul shook the dust from his clothes and said, "'Your blood is upon your heads. I'm innocent.'" From now on, I will go and preach to the Gentiles. Now, before I go on, just a a quick pause, because probably many of you realize this, but maybe some don't, but but there was really only two classes of of people for the Jews. There were Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles was everybody else. Gentiles wasn't a particular um, culture or race. It was just anybody who wasn't a Jew. Verse 7, Then he left and went to the home of Titius Justus, a Gentile, who worshipped God and lived next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and everyone in his household believed in the Lord. And many others in Corinth also heard Paul, became believers, and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, Don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack and harm you, for many people in this city belong to me. So Paul stayed there for the next year and a half teaching the word of God. But when Gallio became governor of Achaia, some Jews rose up against Paul and brought him before the governor for judgment. They accused Paul of persuading people to worship God in ways that are contrary to our law. But just as Paul started to make his defense, Gallio turned to Paul's accusers and said, Listen, you Jews, if this were a case involving some wrongdoing or a serious crime, I would have a reason to accept your case. But since it is merely a question of words and names and your Jewish law, take care of it yourself. 
I refuse to judge such matters. And he threw them out of the courtroom. The crowd then gathered Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him right there in the courtroom. But Gallio paid no attention. Paul stayed in Corinth for some time after that, then said goodbye to the brothers and sisters and went to nearby Centuria. There he shaved his head according to Jewish custom, marking the end of a vow, and then he set sail for Syria, taking Priscilla and Aquila with him. They stopped first at the port of Ephesus, where Paul left the others behind, and while he was there, he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews. They asked him to stay longer, but he declined. As he left, however, he said, I will come back later, God willing. And then he set sail from Ephesus. The next stop was at the port of Caesarea. From there, he went up and visited the church at Jerusalem and then back to Antioch. And after spending some time in Antioch, Paul went back through Galatia and Phrygia, visiting and strengthening all the believers. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures well, had arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria in Egypt. He had been taught the way of the Lord, and he taught others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. However, he knew only about John's baptism. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. Apollos had been thinking about going to Achaia, and the brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged him to go. They wrote to the believers in Achaia and asking them to welcome him. And when he arrived there, he proved to be of great benefit to those who by God's grace had believed. He refuted the Jews with powerful arguments in public debate. Using the scriptures, he explained to them that Jesus was the Messiah. Acts chapter 19. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions until he reached Ephesus on the coast, where he found several believers. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, he asked them. No, they replied. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then what baptism did you experience, he asked, and they replied, the baptism of John. Paul said John's baptism called for repentance from sin, but John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. As soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied, and there were about 12 men in all. Let me pause there again and just Reemphasize. I know I said this in the last episode, but how important, how critically important the presence of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is to the whole book of Acts. Over and over and over again, we see it. Do we long for God to pour out his spirit upon us? I know we received the Spirit when we became Christians, but there is also this continuous filling that is called for. The Spirit drains out. The Spirit drains out of our broken places. We need to be continuously filled. Verse 8, Then Paul went to the synagogue and preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some became stubborn, rejecting his message and publicly speaking against the way. So Paul left the synagogue and took the believers with him. Then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for about... This went on for the next two years so that people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. God gave Paul the power to perform unusual miracles. (laughs) 
Let me stop there for a moment and just say, when you have to distinguish between the usual miracles and the unusual miracles, between the common miracles and the uncommon miracles, you know that something is going on. God, would you let us live in a day when we have to distinguish between the unusual miracles and the usual miracles? Verse 12, when handkerchiefs or aprons that had merely touched Paul's skin were placed on sick people, they were healed of their diseases and evil spirits were expelled. A group of Jews was traveling from town to town, casting out evil spirits. They tried to use the name of the Lord in their incantation, saying, I command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, leading priests, were doing this. But one time when they tried it, the evil spirit replied, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, overpowered them, and attacked them with such violence that they fled from the house naked and battered. The story of what happened spread quickly all through Ephesus to Jews and Greek alike, and a solemn fear descended on the city, and the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. My words, there's something here that is so important for us to grasp, that it's not just about using the name of Jesus, but is Jesus really a part of your name? Are you identified as being in Christ? That's the distinction here. Verse 17, the story of what happened spread quickly all through Ephesus to Jews and Greeks alike. A solemn fear descended on the city in the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices, and a number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. The value of the books was $7 million. So the message about the Lord spread widely and had a powerful effect. Afterward, Paul felt compelled by the Spirit to go over to Macedonia and Achaia before going to Jerusalem. And after that, he said, I must go on to Rome. He sent his two assistants, Timothy and Erastus, ahead to Macedonia while he stayed a while longer in the province of Asia. About that time, serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way. It began with Demetrius, a silversmith, who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek goddess Artemis. He kept many craftsmen busy. He called them together, along with others employed in similar trades, and addressed them as follows. Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business. But as you've seen and heard, this man, Paul, has persuaded many people that handmade gods are not really gods at all. And he's done this not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the entire province. Of course, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will lose its influence and that Artemis, this magnificent goddess worshipped throughout the province of Asia and all around the world, will be robbed of her great prestige. At this, their anger boiled and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was filled with confusion. Everyone rushed to the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristocrats, who were tra- Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Paul wanted to go in too, but the believers wouldn't let him. Some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, also sent a message to him, begging him not to risk his life by entering the amphitheater. Inside, the people were all shouting, some one thing, some another. Everything was in confusion. In fact, most of them didn't even know why they were there. 
The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander forward and told him to explain the situation. He motioned for silence and tried to speak. But when the crowd realized he was a Jew, they started shouting again and kept it up for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. At last, the mayor was able to quiet them down enough to speak. Citizens of Ephesus, he said, Everyone knows that Ephesus is the official guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, whose image fell down to us from heaven. Since this is an undeniable fact, you should stay calm and not do anything rash. You brought these men here, but they've stolen nothing from the temple and have not spoken against our goddess. If Demetrius and the craftsmen have a case against them, the courts are in session and the officials can hear the case at once. Let them make formal charges." And if there are complaints about other matters, they can be settled in a legal assembly. I'm afraid we are in danger of being charged with rioting by the Roman government since there is no cause for all this commotion. And if Rome demands an explanation, we we won't know what to say. Then he dismissed them and they dispersed. Acts chapter 20. When the uproar was over, Paul sent for the believers and encouraged them And then he said goodbye, and he left for Macedonia. While there, he encouraged the believers in all the towns he passed through. Then he traveled down to Greece, where he stayed for three months. He was preparing to sell back to Syria when he discovered a plot by some Jews against his life. So he decided to return through Macedonia. Several men were traveling with him. They were Sopatar, son of Phyrus from Berea, Aristocrats, and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, and Timothy, and Titius, and Trophimus from the province of Asia. They went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. And after the Passover ended, we boarded a ship at Philippi in Macedonia, and five days later joined them in Troas, where we stayed a week. On the first day of the week, we gathered with the local believers to share in the Lord's Supper. Paul was preaching to them, and since he was leaving the next day, he kept talking until midnight. The upstairs room where we met was lighted with many flickering lamps, and as Paul spoke on and on, a young man named Eutychus, sitting on the windowsill, became very drowsy. Finally, he fell sound asleep and dropped three stories to his death below. But Paul went down, bent over him, took him into his arms. Don't worry, he said. He's alive. Then they all went back upstairs, shared in the Lord's Supper, and ate together. Paul continued talking to them until dawn, and then he left. Meanwhile, the young man was taken home alive and well, and everyone was greatly relieved. My words, sometimes we, we look at this story as a, as a warning to not fall asleep in church. But really, it's a story of the greatness and the power of God to heal, to restore, to redeem. Verse 13, Paul went by land to Assos where he had arranged for us to join him while we traveled by ship. He joined us there and we sailed together to Mytilene. The next day we sailed past the island of Chios and the following day we crossed to the island of Samos and a day later we arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail on past Ephesus for he didn't want to spend any more time in the province of Asia. He was hurrying to get to Jerusalem, if possible, in time for the festival of Pentecost. But when we landed at Miletus, he sent a messenger 
to the elders of the church at, at Ephesus, asking them to come and meet him. And when they arrived, he declared, you know that from the day I set foot in the province of Asia until now, I've done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I've endured the trials that came to me from the plots of the Jews. I, I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. I've had one message for Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and of having our faith in our Lord Jesus. And now I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. And now I know that none of you to whom I preach the kingdom will ever see me again. I declare today that I have been faithful. If anyone suffers eternal death, it's not my fault, for I didn't shrink from declaring all that God wants you to know. So guard yourselves and guard God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock, his church, purchased with his own blood over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as leaders. I know that false teachers like vicious wolves will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw following. Watch out. Remember the three years I was with you, my constant watch and care over you night and day, and my many tears from you, for you. And now I entrust you to God and the message of his grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with all those he has set apart for himself. I never coveted anyone's silver or gold or fine clothes. You, you know that these hands of mine have worked to supply my own needs and, and even the needs of those who are with me. And I have been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. You should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had finished speaking, he knelt down and prayed with them. And they all cried as they embraced and kissed him goodbye. They were sad most of all because he had said that they would never see him again. Then they escorted him down to the ship. Before we go on to the next chapter, I just want to pause here on this, this, this intimate moment, this moment of compassion and friendship and, and loyalty that Paul shares with with the elders, the leaders of the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was an incredibly important city and church to the Apostle Paul. It's one of the places where, where the church just sprang out. It, it burst forth. There was revival and awakening in Ephesus. I just want to, I want us to remember this moment of, of embracing and tears as they realize that they will never see Paul again. Paul was that kind of person that he would he would bring forth that kind of feeling in somebody's heart. Acts chapter 21. After saying farewell to the Ephesian elders, we sailed straight to the island of Kaz. The next day we reached Rhodes and then to Patara. There we boarded a, a ship sailing for, for Phoenicia. We sighted the island of Cyprus, passed it on our left, and landed at the harbor of Tyre in Syria, where the ship was to unload its cargo. We went ashore, found the local believers, and stayed with them a week. These believers prophesied through the Holy Spirit that Paul should not go on to Jerusalem. When we returned to the ship at the end of the week, the entire congregation, including women and children, left the city and came down to the shore with us. There we knelt, prayed, 
and said our farewells. Then we went aboard and they returned home. The next stop after leaving Tyre was Ptolemus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed for one day. The next day we went on to Caesarea and stayed at the home of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven men who had been chosen to distribute food. He had four unmarried daughters who all had the gift of prophecy. Several days later, a man named Agabus, who also had the gift of prophecy, arrived from Judea. He came over, took Paul's belt, and bound his own feet and hands with it. Then he said, the Holy Spirit declares, so shall the owner of this belt be bound by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the local believers all begged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But he said, why all this weeping? You're breaking my heart. I am ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. When it was clear we couldn't persuade him, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Isn't this amazing, my words, that that, that Paul believed in the gift of prophecy and, and as the people prophesied, and this happened at many times, prophesied that, that Paul was going to suffer if he continued this journey to Jerusalem. He didn't view the prophecy as a way for him to escape the suffering, to make his life more comfortable. It was just a warning that there really was a test of his faith. And Paul responds, may the Lord's will be done. Verse 15, after this, we packed our things and left for Jerusalem. Some believers from Caesarea accompanied us, and they took us to the home of Manasseh, a man originally from Cyprus, and one of the early believers. When we arrived, the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem welcomed us warmly. The next day, Paul went with us to meet with James, and all the elders of the Jerusalem church were present. After greeting them, Paul gave a detailed account of the things that God had accomplished among the Gentiles through his ministry. After hearing this, they all praised God and And then they said, you know, dear brothers, how many thousands of Jews have also believed and they all follow the law of Moses very seriously. But the Jewish believers here in Jerusalem have been told that you are teaching all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn their backs on the law of Moses. They've heard that you teach them not to circumcise their their children or follow other Jewish customs. Well, what should we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. Here's what we want you to do. We have four men here who have completed their vow. Go with them to the temple and join them in the purification ceremony, paying for them to have their heads ritually shaved. Then everyone will know that the rumors are all false and that you yourself observe the Jewish laws. As for the Gentile believers, they should do what we already told them in a letter. They should abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. So Paul went to the temple the next day with the other men. They had already started the purification ritual, so he publicly announced the date when their vows would end and the sacrifices would be offered for each of them. The seven days were almost ended when some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul in the temple and roused a mob against him. They grabbed him, yelling, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who preaches against our people everywhere and tells everybody to disobey the Jewish laws. He speaks against the temple and even defiles this holy place by bringing in Gentiles. For earlier that day, they had seen him in the city with Trophimus, a Gentile from Ephesus, and and they assumed that Paul had taken him into the temple. The whole city was rocked by these accusations, and a great riot followed. 
Paul was grabbed and dragged out of the temple, and immediately the gates were closed behind him. As they were trying to kill him, word reached the commander of the Roman regiment that all of Jerusalem was in an uproar, and he immediately called out his soldiers and officers and ran down among the crowd. When the mob saw the commander and the troops coming, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander arrested him and ordered him bound with two chains. He asked the crowd who he was and what he had done. Some shouted one thing, some another. Since he couldn't find out the truth and all the uproar and confusion, he ordered that Paul be taken to the fortress. As Paul reached the stairs, the mob grew so violent that the soldiers had to lift him to their soldiers to soldier shoulders to protect him. And the crowd followed behind him shouting, Kill him! Kill him! As Paul was about to be taken inside, he said to the commander, May I have a word with you? Do you know Greek? The commander asked, surprised. Aren't you the Egyptian who led a rebellion some time ago and took 4,000 members of the assassins out into the desert? No, Paul replied, I'm a Jew, a citizen of Tarshish in Cilicia, which is an important city. Please let me talk to these people. The commander agreed, so Paul stood on the stairs and motioned to the people to be quiet. And soon a deep silence enveloped the crowd, and he addressed them in their own language of Aramaic. Chapter 22. Brothers and esteemed fathers, Paul said, listen to me as I offer my defense. And when they heard him speaking in their own language, the silence was even greater. Then Paul said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, and I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. As his student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. I became very zealous to honor God in everything I did, just like all all of you today. And I persecuted the followers of the way, hounding some to death, arresting both men and women, and throwing them into prison. The high priest and the whole council of elders can testify that this is so. For I received letters from them to our Jewish brothers in Damascus, authorizing me to bring the followers of the way from there to Jerusalem in chains to be punished. And and as I was on the road approaching Damascus about noon, a very bright light from heaven suddenly shone down around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, the one who you are persecuting. The people with me saw the light, but they didn't understand the voice speaking to me. I asked, what should I do, Lord? And the Lord told me, get up and go to Damascus, and there you will be told everything you are to do. I was blinded by the intense light and had to be led by the hand to Damascus by my companions. A man named Ananias lived there. He he was a godly man, deeply devoted to the law and well regarded by all the Jews of Damascus. He came and stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And that very moment I could see him. And then he told me, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear him speak, for you are to be his witness, telling everyone what you've seen and heard. What are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. After I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple, and I fell into a trance. I saw a vision of Jesus saying to me, hurry, leave Jerusalem, for the people here won't accept your testimony about me. 
But Lord, I argued, they they certainly know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And I was in complete agreement with your witness, when your witness Stephen was killed. I stood by and kept the coats they took off him when they stoned him. But the Lord said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened until Paul said that word. And then they all began to shout, away with such a fellow. He isn't fit to live. They yelled, threw off their coats and tossed handfuls of dust into the air. The commander brought Paul inside and ordered him lashed with whips to make him confess his crime. He wanted to find out why the crowd had become so furious. And when they tied Paul down to lash him, Paul said to the officer standing there, is it legal for you to whip a Roman citizen who hasn't even been tried? When the officer heard this, he went to the commander and asked, what are you doing? This man is a Roman citizen. So the commander went over and asked Paul, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I certainly am, Paul replied. I am too, the commander muttered, and it cost me plenty. Paul answered, but I am a citizen by birth. The soldiers who were about to interrogate Paul quickly withdrew when they heard he was a Roman citizen, and the commander was frightened because he had ordered him bound and whipped. The next day, the commander ordered the leading priest into session with the Jewish high council. He wanted to find out what the trouble was all about, so he released Paul to have him stand before them. Acts chapter 23. Gazing intently at the high council, Paul began, Brothers, I have always lived before God and with a clear conscience. Instantly, Ananias, the high priest, commanded those close to Paul to slap him on the mouth. But Paul said to him, God will slap you, you corrupt hypocrite. What kind of judge are you to break the law yourself by ordering me struck like that? Those standing near Paul said to him, Do you dare to insult God's high priest? I'm sorry, brothers, he said, I didn't realize he was the high priest for the scriptures say you must not speak evil of any of your rulers. Paul realized that some members of the high council were Sadducees and some were Pharisees. So he shouted out, brothers, I'm a Pharisee as were my ancestors and I'm on trial because my hope is in the resurrection of the dead. This divided the whole council, Pharisees against the Sadducees. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, there is no angels or spirits, but the Pharisees believe in all of these. So there was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of religious law who were Pharisees jumped up and began to argue forcefully. We see nothing wrong with him, they shouted. Perhaps a spirit or an angel spoke to him. As the conflict grew more violent, the commander was afraid they'd tear Paul apart. So he ordered his soldiers to go and rescue him by force and take him back to the fortress. That night, the Lord appeared to Paul and said, Be encouraged, Paul, just as you have been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. The next morning, a group of Jews got together and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 of them in this conspiracy. They went to the leading priests and elders and told them, we have bound ourselves with an oath to eat nothing until we have killed Paul. So you and the high council should ask the commander to bring Paul back to the council and pretend you want to examine his case more fully. We will kill him on the way. But Paul's nephew... 
his sister's son, heard of their plan and went to the fortress and told Paul. Paul called for one of the Roman officers and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something important to tell him. So the officer did, explaining, Paul the prisoner called me over and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took his hand, led him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? Paul's nephew told him, some some Jews were going to ask you to bring Paul before the high council tomorrow, pretending they want to get some more information. But don't do it. There are more than 40 men hiding along the way, ready to ambush him. They vowed not to eat or drink anything until they've killed him. They're ready now, just waiting for your consent. Don't let anyone know you told me this, the commander warned the young man. Then the commander called two of his officers and ordered, get 200 soldiers ready to leave for Caesarea at nine o'clock tonight. Also take 200 spearmen and 70 mounted troops. Provide horses for Paul to ride and get him safely to Governor Felix. Then he wrote this letter to the governor. From Claudius Lysias to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by some Jews and they were about to kill him when I arrived with the troops. When I learned he was a Roman citizen, I removed him to safety. Then I took him to their high council to try to learn the basis of the accusations against him. I soon discovered the charge was something regarding their religious law, certainly nothing worthy of imprisonment or death. But when I was informed of a plot to kill him, I immediately sent him on to you. I've told his accusers to bring their charges before you. So that night, as ordered, the soldiers took Paul as far as Antipatris. They returned to the fortress the next morning while the mounted troops took him on to Caesarea. When they arrived in Caesarea, they presented Paul and the letter to Governor Felix. He read it and then asked Paul what province he was from. Cilicia, Paul answered. I will hear your case myself when your accusers arise, the governor told him. Then the governor ordered him, kept in the prison at Herod's headquarters. Like I said, we're going to pause for a moment on a motivation that drove Paul in Acts 20, 22 through 24. He says, and now compelled by the Spirit, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and, and hardships are facing me. However, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy. Paul wanted to finish well. Too many people today don't finish well. Bobby Clinton, in his study of over 5,000 biblical, historical, and contemporary leaders, determined that only one out of three leaders finish well. Paul wanted to finish well. He wanted to finish with no regrets but lots of joy. And what motivated him? Well, he had a passion. Paul had developed a passion for a good that was greater than his own comfort. A passion for the kingdom of God burned in his heart. He was compelled. He was passionate about introducing people to Jesus. Bringing spiritual life to people was a good greater than his own comfort. Do you have a passion for a good that is greater than your own comfort? A few years ago, Billy Graham hosted an evangelist conference in Amsterdam, and one of the most unlikely men to attend was a Maasai warrior named Joseph. But his story was so compelling that Mr. Graham himself sat with him to listen. 
Michael Card tells the story. He, he writes, one day Joseph, who was walking along one of those hot, hot, dirty African roads, met someone who told him about Jesus and the life that could be found in him. And right there, Joseph responded and accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. The power of the Spirit began to transform his life. He was so filled with so much excitement and joy that he couldn't wait to return to his village and introduce Jesus to his neighbors. Joseph went door to door telling everyone he knew about the cross of Jesus and the life that he offered. He expected their faces to light up the way his had. But to his amazement, not only did they not care, they became violent. The men of the village seized him, held him to the ground while the women beat him with strands of barbed wire. He he was dragged from the village and left to die alone in the bush. Somehow he managed to crawl to a watering hole and, and there after days of passing in and out of consciousness, he found the strength to get up. He he couldn't understand the hostility he'd received from people he'd known all of his life. He he realized that he must have told the story wrong, left something out, not described Jesus right. So there at the watering hole, he rehearsed the good news again and again and again, and he went back to share his faith once more. Joseph limped into the circle of huts and began talking about Jesus. He died for you so that you could be forgiven and come to know the living God. While he pleaded with his people to know Jesus, the men again grabbed him and the women beat him again, opening fresh old wounds. And again, they dragged him unconscious from the village and left him to die. To survive the first beating was amazing. To live through the second was miraculous. Again, days later, Joseph awoke. Again, days later, Joseph returned. And this time they attacked him even before he had a chance to open his mouth and they beat him for what probably would have been the last day. He again spoke to them about Jesus. Before he passed out, the last thing he saw was that the women who were beating him had begun to weep. This time he awoke in his own bed. The ones who had beaten him were trying to save his life and nurse him back to health. The entire village had decided to follow Jesus. Joseph had found a good, a cause, a passion that was greater than his own comfort. Listen, I want to live my life in such a way that not only am I passionate about a good greater than my own comfort, but so that it is the most natural thing in the world for my family to be passionate about a good that is greater than their own comfort. You know, if you had to summarize your life in six words, what would they be? Several years ago, the Smith Magazine asked that question. It was inspired by a legendary challenge given to Ernest Hemingway to write a six-word story that resulted in for sale baby shoes never worn. In fact, they made it an online contest. The magazine was flooded with so many responses that the site almost crashed and the responses were eventually turned into a book. Not quite what I was planning is the name of the book and it's filled with six-word memoirs by some well-known and some never-known people. The responses ranged from funny to inspiring to heartbreaking. One tooth, one cavity, life's cruel. (laughs) A nine-year-old boy with cancer wrote, cursed with cancer blessed with friends. Margaret wrote, followed rules, not dreams, never again. Zach's was, I still make coffee for two. And Sam wrote, love drama, just not my own. (laughs) An unexpected personal story was shared by Anne. Her six-word memoir was, I found my mother's suicide note. She talked about how important it was for her to come to terms with her mother's death and, and the role of her mother's note in that process. The note, she explained, 
was also six words, no flowers, no funeral, no nothing. How would you describe your life thus far in six words? The answer to that question really forces us to ask another question. Why am I here? What is life's greatest aim? What is my purpose? What are the dreams for my life that will actually give life? And Paul's answer to that question, I think, is given in Acts 20, 24. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. See, I think Paul's six-word story might have been, I want my life to count. I want my life to count. And so many of our, our American dream lives, our goal is to become this thing where we count our lives. We count what we have and what we will have. We count our achievements and our success. We count our friends on Facebook and Twitter and our likes on Instagram. But deep down, we don't want just to count our lives. We want our lives to count. We want our lives to count. When we forget what counts, We lose our purpose for living and the good news becomes okay news. But is that all there is? Is that all that counts? Is that why we're here just to become nice people living nice lives? Or is there a life still to be lived that is more full of life? A life that connects with God. A life that in every circumstance brings more and more, becomes more and more like the heart of Jesus. A life that turns the world upside down. Why am I here? What if the six-word story of my life was, I want my life to count? Let me pray for you. Father God, I pray for each and every person listening to this, to my to my voice. I pray, Father, that you would help them to know that, that you have been in the process all through their lives of shaping them so that they could do the good works that you prepared in advance for them to do. God, I pray that you would help them to know that whatever it is, whether in the eyes of the world it seems small, insignificant, or huge, that that they would know that in your eyes, when we follow your plan, when we reach out with your gifts and open our hands with your resources and and give it away, that our lives are counting, that, 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 that our lives are making a difference in the lives of others. Father God, would you fill us with your spirit? Would you fill us with your spirit so that we can make a difference, so that our lives would count? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.